Isaiah 43. The Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, says, For your sake I have sent an army to Babylon and brought down all the bars, turning the Chaldeans singing into a lament. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. The Lord says, the Lord that is, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and battalion, they will lie down together and will not rise. They will be extinguished, extinguished like a wick. Don't remember the prior things. Don't ponder ancient history. Look, I'm doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert, paths in the wilderness. The beasts of the field, the jackals and ostriches will honor me because I have put water in the desert and streams in the wilderness to give water to my people, my chosen ones, this people whom I'm formed for myself who will recount my praise Think for a moment about who you are, about where you come from, about what you believe, about your dreams, about your goals. Just think for a moment about all the things that make you, you. For the, the people that are in the membership class, we had an exercise this past week where we took a strengths finders test and we were asked all of these questions that paired, do you like to sit and watch TV? Do you love the outdoors? And you have to like r figure out where you fall on that scale. Sometimes the, the pairings that they would have would be so like either you're in the middle where you say, I love both of those equally, but I don't know how to answer it now. Or it's like, I hate both of those equally. Um, so we've been privy this past week to understanding maybe a little bit of what makes us tick and who we are. But if you think beyond that, think back to the stories, um, to the experiences that you've had that have shaped who you are to this very moment. Just looking over there, I catch eyes with Laura, and I think about my upbringing and going to Epworth Christian School from kindergarten through 12th grade. And all my private school kids in the room know that at times going to a Christian school is a blessing, and at times it is a curse. You go to school with the same people for 13 or 14 years. We only had 13. Um, and you get to know them so well that it's almost like they're obligated to be all up in your biz, you know? It's like that's part of the, the job requirements. Um, but goodness, Epworth, for better or for worse, has shaped me for being who I am now. I say this, and it's kind of sad. Um, I'm a Bible teacher today because of, because of my Bible teachers at Epworth that were, shall we say, lackluster. Um, I was sitting there in class thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, and mainly it was because, you know, it's anybody that had an open period. It was like the gym teacher, literally. My, the gym teacher, who was my gym teacher, who's now my brother-in-law, uh, was my eighth grade Bible teacher. And he, we just read a book about Joshua the whole time. And he had an overhead projector. How many remember overhead projectors? <laughs> he would stand there and have, he'd have like this fill-in-the-blank thing. And he'd take the top sheet down one by one just to reveal just as much. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's taunting. It's like... You know, just, it just taunts you as you're sitting there. But for better or worse, that has shaped who I am. My family has shaped who I, I am. The experiences that we've had together as a family, the good ones and the bad ones, have shaped who I am. Um, my Christian faith obviously has shaped who I am. The stories about my testimony, when I remember, and some of you have heard this, when I remember being five years old, going to vacation Bible school on that weekend um, 
extravaganza and wanting to impress a young lady by the name of Jennifer and asking my mom if I could wear my orange floral print bathing suit to win her heart over. And I remember that night they had a flannel graph that was black light flannel graph where you put Jesus on there and hit the black light and Jesus like illuminates and and if you don't get saved with black light illuminated flannel graph of Jesus, I don't know what's going to get you. I don't know what sort of method that we can use to try to <laughs> bring you into the family. Um, that's a joke, by the way. But still, we have these, these moments that are pivotal. I also remember being in 12th grade and wondering what it was I was going to do with my life. And I remember uh, at a spiritual emphasis week, we had a week-long time where we closed down school and basically played games and sang songs and learned about Jesus some of us. Um, and I remember being in the front praying at one of those meetings saying, God, if you want me to be in the ministry, if you want me to go to Bible college, let me know. Give me a sign! How many of you guys have been at the give me a sign stage of life? Well, I prayed that prayer, and it was no sooner than five, five seconds, probably even less than that, where the speaker of that week was down on his knees, whispering in my ear, Josh, ever since the first moment I met you, I knew that you were destined to be in full-time ministry. And I just met this guy like three days previous. That's a sign, right? I have like these um, plant a flag in the ground moments that have become my story that have shaped who I am as a person. And I long, I mean, as most people do, I long for more of those moments where you can plant flags in the ground and, and know that God's still walking with you wherever it is you're going. One of them happened on the way out to California. Um, since we're in the, the, the mood of nostalgia, I had asked Kate's mom if I could marry her daughter in February. And one of the questions she asked me was, you're not going to take her far away from me, are you? And I said, oh no, <laughs> not, not a chance. I had no intention of doing that. Well, three months later, Kate and I were getting ready to pack our bags and move to California, <laughs> which is about as far away as you can go if you're not going to Alaska. Um, in America. But on that trip, and goodness, if you have 10 minutes and you want me to talk your ear off, I can talk to you about that year, Kate and I learning what it was like to be a married couple in California all on our own, um, while she silently or not so silently resented me for wanting to go out to California, and I silently or not so silently loved California because it's awesome. Um, we had that weird dynamic going, but along the way on that trip, there was just these little God moments where it was kind of like him saying, you're going in the right direction. This probably will be hard, but you're going in the right direction. That's all part of our story as a couple. It's part of my story as an individual. Um, and I know that for each of you, as you sit here, you have those sorts of moments and you have those sorts of stories that have shaped and formed who you are. I want to use that as, a, as an entryway into this talk today. Um, I've been doing a lot of study recently with my dissertation on memory and the importance of memory, specifically as it, um, again, shapes who you are, shapes what you do, like your ethics and how they're based and rooted in this idea of a corporate memory. I want to read you this quote. This is like five or six different authors here. They're saying, communities have a history. In an important sense, they are constituted by their past, and for this reason, we can speak of a real community as a community of memory, one that does not forget its past. In order not to forget that past, a community is involved in retelling its story, its constitutive narrative, and in so doing, it offers examples of the men and women who have embodied and exemplified the meaning of that community. Basically, what's happening here is, what they're saying is a community is formed with individuals who share a, a common story. 
They share a common memory, whether that's a memory that they've experienced or a memory that's rooted farther back in the distant past. Um, And in order to not forget that past or that memory, they keep telling the stories over and over and over and over. I keep telling my testimony about my orange shorts over and over. I keep telling about that instance in front of the, the sanctuary praying and and John Wood kneeling down saying, this is what you're supposed to do. And I keep telling these stories about Kate and I. I keep bringing those things back up to invite us into this community of memory. We all have examples of this, our families. We have a past with our family. Sometimes it's been a great history of shared memories. Sometimes it's been a terrible one that's shaped who, who you are. Our jobs have these stories behind them. I work at Salisbury Christian School. I don't know really what their story is, but I know that they do have one. But I know the story of Delmarva Christian High School a little bit better, which is where I worked um, previous to going to California. And basically, Delmarva Christian High School was started by four men sitting around a, a dinner table dreaming about what it would look like to start a regional Christian high school. There's this story about why this school exists and what their mission is and what they're doing and why they're doing it. Our churches, the Restoration Project, has a story. Some of you have been there since day one when we met in Josh and Elena's house, and we awkwardly kind of sat there and sang some songs and tried to figure out what in the world was going on, and some people said, this is not for me, and some people said, this is for me, and we have that story. And together, whatever this becomes, um, there's going to be a handful of us that can look back and say, remember when we were in Josh and Elena's house? Remember when we were in... Uh, Bethany Lutheran Church and there was like 20 of us or remember when we did that first membership meeting or remember when we went to serve these people or uh, any sort of things like that it's our shared history it's our communal memory our faith has a communal memory in a word what would that be Jesus yeah absolutely the story that unites us together is the story of God taking on flesh living a sinless life and sacrificing himself on our behalf to die and then to rise after three days and then to ascend and be seated next to God the Father. For some of us, that story has been retold so much that it's lost all meaning and power. It's lost all transformative properties in, in who we are. We also have, as we're dipping back into Isaiah, there's this shared memory. There's this communal experience. There's this story that they've all lived through that have made them be who they are at that very moment. Their families have this story. For a lot of them, it's a story of um, destruction. It's a story of displacement. It's a story of being removed from your homeland and taken into captivity um, and trying to figure out what life looks like. They have um, their community as a whole, not just as individual families, but now they're Israelites trying to figure out what it looks like to be an Israelite who follows Yahweh in a foreign land where they follow all sorts of other gods. They also have um, their, their history, which has been rooted in the promises of God that says, I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land. I will keep you there. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And they have this rift where they begin to rethink what that actually looks like. Their history, um, the story of it, becomes something in question. Their faith, in the same way, becomes that, that, that thing that they're trying to navigate. And for some of you, that's exactly where you are. The stories are all well and good, but they're not doing it anymore because real life doesn't line up with the stories. Real life doesn't add up to this shared memory where we talk about in this room about Jesus and how good he is and how powerful he is and how he's there for us because you don't think he's there for you and you don't feel as though he's there for you and that hasn't been 
uh, your story at all, but we have Israel in exile trying to determine what their shared story is, and that's basically why this set of text is written. We have the, the poet who shows up and says, comfort my people, comfort. We have the poet who shows up and says um, that Yahweh wants to keep this people close to his chest, that these people are chosen and they're precious and they're loved. And it's almost like he keeps retelling this story over and over and over and over and over in the midst of ashes and rubble and people suffering. He keeps retelling this communal story to get them to believe who they are at the very core of their being. There's this shift from judgment to salvation that we see in this text here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these two verses, and basically tonight we're going to march through um, just this little set of text here. I have some things uh, that I think are pretty interesting that I want to, to bring out, but here in this, this first set, it says, The Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, says, For your sake I have sent an army. Actually, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say anything about what he's sending. It just says, I have sent to Babylon. It kind of leaves it up in the air as to what that is, although uh, the implied message is very clear. Babylon, the people who have destroyed you, who have displaced you, who have taken you from the land that is yours, I've sent something or someone to take care of that. We learn very quickly in the next couple chapters that that person is Cyrus and the Persian Empire who are going to come and displace Babylon. But here, it's just saying, I have sent to Babylon. In other words, I have taken care of whatever needs that you have. The things that are causing you to stay up at night, or maybe even not causing you to stay up at night, I'm in control of those things, and I'm sending something to take care of it. I'm bringing down all the bars, turning the Chaldeans, singing into a lament. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. So this is technically called a salvation oracle. And there's a couple things that's going on in this text. Number one, God is reestablishing an identity with the people. He keeps saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The underlying message is, I can do what I want to do, and I will do what I want to do. But he's framing that by all these adjectives where he's saying, I am the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who's purchased you, the one that's fighting for you, the one that has this family connection to you. I am the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah, all through this set of texts in 40 through 55, keeps referring to God as the Holy One, the one who is completely distinct from us, the one who is completely distinct from who we are. Again, if you think back to this past week, I mean, this isn't science, but I doubt we've been extremely and utterly holy. Whether that looks like we stub our toe and say some things, or we treat our friends or our family in a way that's not um, Christ-like, or we complain and mumble. And I mean, there's things that, that demonstrate each and every day that we are not like God. He's completely separate from, from who we are. He continues, I'm your creator, I'm your king. There's all these things that are keep being uh, brought up to the surface here that's demonstrating what God's identity is. He's also trying to reestablish an intent. All of this, all the things that he's doing are for your sake. Wouldn't that be awesome if God says to us the things that I'm doing are for you? I think he probably has said that somewhere in, in the scriptures, but we don't usually take that into uh, consideration as we go about li our life. But here, it's uh, for your sake, I'm sending to Babylon. I'm reclaiming sovereignty. Like, I'm in charge of things. I'm the one who uh, has put people into power, and I'm the one who's going to take people out of power. 
hopefully our prayers um, demonstrate that belief that God is in control. There's certain things that we say regularly as Christians. It might be your dinnertime prayer. Dear God, thanks for this day. Thanks for this food. Amen. I mean, it might be that. That's instilled from when we're very young, and I would encourage parents not to do this. Um, spice it up, you know? Just popcorn prayer that thing. You know what I mean? Where it's, you're just kind of going for it, and you're throwing things out there. Um, I remember one of my best friends, we were at Bible college together. And if you guys don't know anything about Bible college, it's extremely holy. Uh, it's where people go that want to sit on the stoop and sing praise songs to woo the women. <laughs> I knew I was in for it when on the very first day of soccer camp, I just saw these guys sitting out on the stoop like, hallelujah. That was the hit song back then, back in the day. Um, and that was like, come to me, ladies. <laughs> Why am I talking about this? Bible college, holy. Yes, thank you, prayer. So my buddy, we're at Bible college, and we're kind of sticking out like sore thumbs because we're not sitting on the stoop <laughs> singing praise hymns to get the attention of young ladies. Um, but I remember one time after soccer practice, they asked him to pray, and his prayer went a little something like this. Hey, God, how are you? Like, it was very, like, personal, and, like, everyone around is kind of snickering, and I mean— we, we treat our prayer life in this very routine way. We treat our prayer life for, for a lot of us in, in ways that don't demonstrate any sort of relationship. Now, my buddy took this to the, the very end extreme where it was like all relationship. Like, how you doing? What's going on? Yeah, just here at soccer practice. <laughs> it's like, you know, odd is what it was. But still, there was this, this, he had something that the rest of us didn't. I guess you could say, um, but he was moving beyond just that, that stagnant relationship into to something different, and I think that how we view God is so ingrained in us each and every day that it's hard for us to get beyond that into thinking about God in new ways, and I'm not just saying like controversial ways. I'm saying God can meet you where you are. God can actually answer the prayer that you've been praying for years. God actually does love you. For some of us, that's revolutionary thinking. And I would encourage you to, to, keep that, to keep that there, remembering that God is not only the Holy One, but He's the Redeemer, He's the Creator, and He's the King, the one that has that uh, relationship. And that Salvation Oracle in the first couple of verses confirms that Israel is God's servant, which is a case that the poet has been making throughout uh, these first few chapters that we've been looking at. It's also making the case and confirming that Israel is precious and honored and loved. I love that language. It's very, like, emotionally driven, but when I hear that term about God loving me, it doesn't turn into, like, romance. It turns into, like, God is committed to me, regardless of what I do, regardless of how much of an idiot I am, regardless of the things that I say to Kate and the way that I fail us in our relationship, regardless of the way that I fail you guys as a body, God is committed to me. And he will see me through. Like, thinking about those things in that way is, is, is revolutionary. Now, this is the cool part and where I want to get going here. In verse 16, it says, The Lord says, and this is how the poet is further describing who the Lord is. He's the one that makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and battalion. What story in Israel's corporate memory is being evoked here in this imagery? 
Yeah, parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus. And if you remember in the Exodus, we have Israel in bondage, Israel in slavery, Israel crying out. We have that really sweet verse, I believe it's in Exodus 2, where it says, God heard and God knew. You might be able to translate that, God acknowledged. It's almost like, I hear you, and I'm going to do something about it. And what he did about it was, he allowed Israel to leave bondage and captivity and go into the promised land. At least that was the plan. But here we have this, this salvation oracle here, which is dealing with images of an ancient past, where the Exodus is that framing story that gives them the identity that they have maybe lost in the exile. Right? So they've been displaced, they've been removed. This is a people that didn't experience the Exodus. That was 700 maybe 900 years previous, depends on who you talk to. Um, it wasn't their story, but it was one that kept coming up, kept being rehearsed. Because remember, communities have a history. They are constituted by their past. Real communities can be viewed as a community of memory, one that doesn't forget. And if you read the Old Testament, it keeps saying, don't forget, don't forget. And it also keeps citing the Exodus. Like that moment of redemption, that moment of leaving bondage and oppression into deliverance and redemption. So we have that, that salvation oracle that's, that's framing it here. And the memory of Exodus is demonstrating who God is and by default who Israel is. Throughout the Old Testament we see pictures of God is the one who redeems and restores, and now Israel, you redeem and restore. Or now Israel, because you were slaves in a foreign land, you treat these slaves and these foreigners in a, a different way. So it's, it's saying who God is, who Israel is, and also how Israel should live. Like this story is completely and utterly significant for who these people are, but it's a story that has been lost. It's a story that has been forgotten. It's a story that has died in the piles of ash and rubble and smoke and broken pottery. So here's the question. One question. What is it that you remember? Or you could ask it the other way. What is it that you have forgotten? We've talked about like that framing narrative that Christians have in Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the story that unites us. But is that really the story that you keep going back to, or has that been one that you have blocked out because real life doesn't live up to that? The claims that the church makes aren't being reflected in real life. Remember the very beginning. Think about who you are. Think about uh, your past. Think about your stories. Think about those things and hear the underlying call of the poet to not forget these stories and how they shape and frame who you are. But what's interesting here is there's a turn in, in this set of texts where the poet says, don't remember the prior things. See the tension there? So we have all this like implicit information that's saying God's your creator. Remember that thing he did way back then? God's your redeemer. Remember that thing he did way back then? That's who God is, and that's why you are who you are. And then the poet shows up and says, but don't remember that. Don't ponder or think about ancient history. So here we have this question right off the bat where 
is this a contradiction? Is this just hyperbole? Or is this a rhetorical strategy? That is a 50 cent bonus question. If you're at the punch bowl and you're trying to get people away from you, you could talk about rhetorical strategies or other things like that. Um, but here it seems as though what the poet is trying to do is to instill not just this idea that you, f you forget it, but he's trying to show you the danger of living in the old. And the way that I want to explain this to you is by talking about my kickball team. You heard that correct. I'm on an organized, competitive kickball team, which I'm very excited about trying to get a kickball team for next year with our little church. We've got to mind our P's and Q's, though, because I don't like it when churches play softball and act like a bunch of idiots. So if we do play kickball, we have to be very Christian-like. But it doesn't mean we have to lose. Okay? But it also doesn't mean that we act like my college soccer and baseball coaches and kind of played the Jesus guilt card like Jesus didn't lose for you on the cross like <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> you know I mean like that won't be how it goes but we'll still this uh, yeah. yeah so I'm playing kickball and I think I'm 31 years old I'm thinking about my glory days like fifth grade Right? We used to play in um, this, the recess grounds, ob obviously, but we had this student parking lot, which I don't even know how we got away with this, but the student parking lot was home runs. So if you kicked it into somebody's, like, uh, old Honda Civic, it would <laughs> that's a home run. We also played soccer in there. This is a side note, too. And the goals would be, like, um, this guy's car from his front fender to this guy's tire. We'd be, like, bam! Like, just wailing on these guys' cars. I don't know why they never beat us up or put us in trash cans and roll us down the stairs, because that's what you could do back in the 80s and 90s. You could do that, get away with it. Anyway, I'm playing kickball, and I'm thinking about my glory days and, you know, my, my athletic prime, and I'm playing. I'm having a great time. That night, right, like this whole right side of my body, like, starts seizing up, <laughs> you know? It's like just one tight muscle. And I wake up the next day, and, like, I just had, like, cramp, cramp, cramp. Like, my ankle was killing me. I was like, I was just, I just kicked this rubber ball. I thought, man, I'm really, really stinking old. But my mindset, here's the tie, my mindset was, I'm invincible. I'm good. I'm back in the, the recess yard kicking balls off people's cars. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, but the reality was something totally different. I was living in the old, and, and it was showing itself to be not the case the next day as I could barely move. It's the same way with our faith, too. Not the same way, because this is a terrible analogy, but it's, it's got some, some overplay here, where oftentimes we live in the past. That experience that we had back then that spiritual retreat that we went to that was so awesome, like, that's the thing that we keep looking back to and maybe even never moving away from. Like, the stories that I just told you, there's a danger in me thinking, that was the highlight. There should be a moment where you say, like, that's the truth back there, and it can be the truth today, and it can be the truth in a year, or it can be the truth in ten years. It's almost saying, like, the old isn't just good because it's old. The old is good because it impacts the present and the future. 
when people talk about memory stuff, sorry, I've just been reading about memory and I'm kind of nerding out a little bit on this, but when people talk about memory, it's not just remembering something that happened in the past, it's remembering something in the past so that it shapes your present. You don't remember things or you don't forget things just for the sake of it. it. It shapes who you are, which makes me wonder, why do I keep thinking about bear traps? That was meant to be more of a joke than it actually was, but I think about bear traps once, probably once a week and how my leg might fall off. I actually begin to think if my leg does get caught in a bear trap, would the teeth go straight through and cut my leg in half or would I be caught in it? But then you think, well, if it's made for a bear, they just get caught in the trap. I'm going to segue into spiritual things now. <laughs> There's a danger in living in the old and not wanting that to impact who you are today the new also can potentially become unrecognizable because you're so fixated on what used to be, right? Kickball analogy. I got to play a different game now. I'm not a power kicker anymore, so I got to play small ball, you know, just trying to manufacture runs, moving from base to base, smart base running, good defense. That's my game now. So the new has to become <laughs> recognizable, <laughs> all right? Sorry, I'm really struggling tonight. But here it says, look, I'm doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? It's like Israel sitting by the rivers of Babylon. I know I keep bringing that up. It's almost like they're just kind of pouting, going about life, saying this is bunk. God's not going to do anything anymore. And the new thing that he's stirring up is so foreign to them because they've written him off or they've confined him to that stuff he did in the past. Don't you recognize it? It's like that one stings if you let it. I'm doing all this stuff. Don't you see it? We sit around and say, I wish God would show up. And I imagine he's saying, don't you recognize it? Don't you see me? Your friends, your family, the people that care about you, the people that show up randomly just to encourage you, the text messages that you get out of nowhere, the random money that you get in the mailbox, all that stuff, that's me. I'm using these people. Don't you see it? What do you want me to do? Come down and hang out in your bedroom and say, what's up? You know what I mean? Like, don't you recognize that the new becomes unrecognizable? Also, the new is depicted by this transformation and restoration. This is where it gets really neat. He says, I'm making a way in the desert, paths in the wilderness. This is classic Isianic language. Paths in the wilderness, a way in the desert. That's what God does. When he shows up to help people, he's making the desert lush and verdant and green. He's making the dry streams overflowing with water. He's like completely restoring and renewing things. This one got lost on me, and I imagine it gets lost on most people here. It says, the beasts of the field, the jackals and ostriches, they will honor me because I will put water in the desert and streams in the wilderness. This idea of jackals and ostriches here is, in my mind, very much tied to the gospel. How do you ask? Is it tied to the gospel? Let me tell you. So we have back in Isaiah 34 and 35. Some people think this is the same author. Doesn't matter much to me if it is or if it isn't because he's using the same picture. What he's doing is saying destruction is typified by jackals and ostriches. Check it out. So Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, its dust into sulfur, and its land will become burning pitch. Night and day won't be extinguished. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it will lie waste. No one will ever pass through it again. Screech owls and crows will possess it. Owls and ravens will live there. God will stretch over it a measuring line of chaos and the plummet stone of emptiness over its officials. This 
this people group, this region of Edom is getting it. It used to be this, and it becomes the place that screech owls. That's awesome. Like, they possess it. Trying to come up with a modern-day analogy of animals taking over things, and all I can think of is a little porter taking over our living room sometimes. Like, today, dude was freaking out. It's like, he just, he gets down, like, on all fours and gets really low and just starts, like, growling and then barking at me and attacking me, sort of. So he might not be with us much longer. <laughs> but hopefully he can work through that. I think he's playing, maybe. But sometimes the animals will take over a place. Ah. No kingdom there, they will call it, and all its princes will disappear. Here we go. Thorns will grow up in its palaces, weeds and brambles in its fortresses. It will be a dwelling for what? Jackals and a home for ostriches. Ostriches is a weird, a weird image. Just the ostriches, like rule in the roost, and you show up like, oh, the ostriches are there. Oh, they are very fast, aren't they? They're flightless, which is weird, but they can just run really fast. Birds freak me out. I mean, little ducks or whatever, I mean, if they, if they want to attack you, it's just kind of freaky. But here we see jackals and ostriches. I'm getting way past the point here. The point is, those are the animals that inhabit the uninhabitable. Those are the animals that basically live where no one else is living. The ruins, the destruction, those are the animals that are there. Here in Isaiah 34, this is uh, Paul Hansen. He says, the prophet projected a vivid image of chaos. Jackals and ostriches prowling amidst the ruins of a world collapsed under the weight of iniquity of its inhabitants. To portray the radical nature of the new thing that God purposes, Second Isaiah reintroduces the jackals and the ostriches, this time themselves restored to beauty and wholeness and giving honor to their creator. Catch it. The beasts of the field, the jackals and the ostriches will honor me. The animals that like ruled the roost in devastation and destruction that basically signify this place is empty and desolate and no life lives there, they're going to be there with the streams running, and they're going to be honoring me. I think that's really awesome how those, those things are tied together, where it's basically saying the animals that signify devastation are going to be restored and allowed to live within this redeemed community. This people, he goes on to say, they're going to recount or remember my praise. This whole thing is... These stories that frame who you are, creator, redeemer, um, the exodus, don't live in the past, but understand that he continually does those things over and over and over and over. And this, when you understand that, this people will be the ones who will recount the praises of God over and over, not just in the past, but in the present and in the future, almost declaring it into existence. So the breakdown of these few verses that we looked at is basically this. I am God. I'm holy. I'm the creator. I'm the king. I'm the redeemer. That's who I am. Remember your story, Israel, but don't forget to apply it to the present. It's not just something that you keep in the past. The cross and the empty tomb is not just something that you keep into the past. It's not just something that takes away your sins. It's something that actually brings new life into the present. And then also remember that I'm restoring you like the crazy jackals and the ostriches that that signified desolation, they will now become those instruments that signify 
praise and reconciliation and redemption. So here's the application real quick. God is working. He's creating. He's redeeming. He continues to do so. He's also doing something new. Remember, it says, don't remember the old things. I'm doing something new. Don't you see it? Don't you recognize it? Don't you experience it? Don't you feel it? But it's not just at the expense of the old. It's in addition to the old. So God has, in my life, those moments of bathing suit, black light, illuminated Jesus, spiritual emphasis week, Kate and I stuff, like these moments in the church history, these moments where God is like showing up in very tangible ways, saying like, this is where you should be going. This is what you should be doing. And he's going to do that in a week or in a month or in a year or however long. That's what I expect because that's been the pattern. It's not just those things back in the, back in the day. It's those things will continue to happen. The image in Isaiah 43 is foreshadowing the new covenant. So basically, Jesus is the one that makes the way in the desert. This whole text is gospel, gospel, gospel. The things that were uninhabitable become habitable. The things that were dark and destitute, and I mean, you get it, they become restored, and they do that through Jesus. The jackals and the ostriches and those destined for wrath, as the New Testament authors would identify us, they have been redeemed and now call attention to his restorative work. The story that you have, if it has anything to do with gospel or transformation, must be relevant for today, for the people around you. If it's not, pack it up. The fact that you have these things in your past has to be relevant, not only for you, but for the people around you. Because we are those ambassadors for Christ that call attention to his creative and his redemptive acts that continue on. And then finally, this verse, I think, seals it. If one is in Christ there's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There, even in the New Testament, there's this play between old and new. There's a play between the old man and the new man or the old person and the new person. It's like when we accept Jesus, we become something totally different than what we used to be. We become redeemed Paul oftentimes uses it with the phrase of, you were once destined for destruction. You were once the place where the jackals and the ostriches lived. You were once that heap of pile of, that pile of rubble and ash and smoke. But Christ has resurrected you, brought you to new life. The old is gone. There is a new creation. That newness should be what fuels us. That newness should be what gives us hope. That newness should be what inspires those around us to hope that God will work in their life as well. Final thoughts. The community of memory that we live in, the community of the stories that we have that either signify who you are as an individual or us as a community, have they lost all meaning to you? Have they died the sweet death of whatever dies sweetly? Are they things that we say constitutes who we are, but we don't really believe? Do we really think that we are part of the new creation? Hear the voice of the poet in Isaiah, this ragtag group of misfits and rebellious, hardened sinners 
God keeps saying, you're precious, you're honored, I love you. I'm trying to restore you. On the other side of the cross, we have Christ who is saying similar things to us. I love you, you're precious, you're honored, I want to restore you. It's so easy, yet so difficult, but here we have this gospel right before us that we can take advantage of. And gosh, I hope and I pray that not only do we take advantage of it, but that it does have that meaning and that significance that the Old Testament and the New Testament author, authors um, ascribe to it.